You're listening to Tatiana is Everyone, an Orphan Black podcast. I'm your host, Chris. And I'm Stephanie. And this episode, we're going to be discussing episode 10 of season one of Orphan Black called Endless Forms Most Beautiful, which is a lovely, lovely title. It is. It's sort of an elegant title, I find. It is. It's very poetic. So this is a in continuation from last episode. I feel like this is another episode that just kind of grabs you from out of the gate and just kind of pulls you along in its wake. Yeah. Oh, so much stuff happens. I know. And much of it is vaguely upsetting. <laughs> so much of it is very upsetting, I think. Well, there's that too. <laughs> the episode begins with Amelia meeting Helena. And I kind of love Helena's reaction to Sarah saying, this is your birth mother. Yeah, it is an interesting reaction. I, I don't know. Would you qualify it as uh, incredulity? <laughs> yeah, it's this little like, ha, pull the other one. Yeah. And and I think that's partially because she's black, but also because of the you're the original nonsense that Tomas has been feeding her. Yeah. Although really, you know, what would you think your origins are if you're the original? Wouldn't you? I would imagine she would think, she had parents the traditional way who gave birth, who, you know, conceived her and gave birth to her. I suppose. So probably one of her parents would not have been black. It's probably her thought. Probably true. And again, in that scene, I feel like Sarah puts the chair too close to Helena. She did it in, in episode four in Maggie Chen's apartment. And she does it again here. I'm like, no, she's, you need to be way out of reach of somebody like Helena. I'm sorry. <laughs> But but she feels a connection, Stephanie. Okay, sistra, I know, <laughs> I know. That is sort of an interesting reaction, I think, that Helena has to the news that she and Sarah are twins. Yeah, it's it's like she is having difficulty accepting the idea that she's a clone, but she takes to the idea that she and Sarah are twins very quickly. Mm-hmm. She looks kind of delighted, actually. Mm -hmm. She looks very pleased. I think for the first time, she really feels like she has family. Mm -hmm. And also sort of an, oh, that's what that feeling is. Mm -hmm. But that disturbing little family reunion is followed by Sarah being arrested quite dramatically in her home. And before it happens, Kira says to Mrs. S, I think something bad is going to happen again. And that line, I wonder if Kira meant the arrest or if Kira might not have meant something else. And by something else, I mean Rachel's attempt to kidnap them or supposed attempt to kidnap Kira later in the episode. Yeah, I always wonder about that, too. And also, how does Kira know that? Yes, she's a very astute child. I mean, there's perceptiveness and then there's... Being prescient. Yeah, I, this is a case where it really seems like Kira's rather prescient. We could have chalked it up to perceptiveness previously, but this really seems to be a, a case of, of prescience. Which, again, what does it mean? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, Chris. I don't know. I know. I'm just asking the universe or something. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But clearly, clearly... We have a lot to learn about Kira, and I, I bet we're going to get a little more information in season two. One would hope so. Yeah, they have to, right? Come on. Logically, yes. So Sarah is arrested, and 
we see Art, you know, question her. And he really uses that recording that she made back in episode four before she had the confrontation with Helena in Maggie Chan's apartment to really establish a sense of trust between the two of them, even though she'd been lying about their identity. And I really feel for Sarah in that scene. You can tell she just wants to have this whole situation not be completely on her shoulders anymore. She really seems to want to hand it over to somebody like Art, who's in kind of a position of authority. Mm-hmm. Somebody who will actually help her, mm-hmm. really. Yeah. Somebody trustworthy. Because she's really shouldered a lot of this burden. She's become the kind of de facto leader of Clone Club. And she's had to deal with Helena the most. And so she, I think all of that kind of comes crashing down on her in this episode. Right. They've been trying to avoid the Prolethians and Helena. And then she finally has a hold of Helena. And this is after dealing with crazy Tomas and that whole situation. And then in this episode, there's all the dealings with Leaky. And so, yeah, you can see why she'd want to be done with that. It's all pretty complicated. But then before she can confess to Art in classic television fashion, they get interrupted by this guy, Daniel Rosen, who I do not trust at all. Yeah, Daniel Rosen, the lawyer, and I'm air quoting lawyer here because I kind of feel like he's not a lawyer, or maybe he is, but he he feels more like a man in black type, doesn't he? He definitely has a menace to him. And I mean, granted, lawyers can be menacing, I suppose, but <laughs> but I'm with you. I'm not 100% sold on the idea that he's just a lawyer, or even a lawyer. Well, because we see him later in the Dyad building, or the Neolutionists building, or whatever the hell they are. The same building as Rachel. <laughs> right. He's He's lurking in the hallway, the dim hallway outside Rachel's office. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I just, if he's really a lawyer, then what is he doing? <laughs> Lurking in the hallway with his menacing presence. <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm so suspicious. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> Speaking of Rachel, we finally have sort of the Rachel's reveal in this episode. And though I, I believe, did we see her back? We saw her in the episode before this. But it was just her back and they didn't reveal her face. I believe that is true. But yeah. of course, everybody's like, well, that's Everybody another Tatiana, it. clearly. It's clearly. Yeah, clearly. We knew it was going to be another Tatiana Maslany, but we we have the reveal of Rachel in this episode and get her name. And she's also British, but has a much posher accent than Sarah does. Yes, she does. And, you know, because the big thing in this episode is we have each of the clones being approached separately by the Neolutionists, by the clone experiment and saying, hey, truce, y'all. But not really, because we're big liars. <laughs> hey, truce, y'all. <laughs> that is text- exactly how they phrased it. <laughs> That's my Texan way of saying it. That would have been a different episode. <laughs> a, a different. That's a different show. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. But it's interesting to see how each of the approaches is tailored to each of the clones. And Leaky does not approach Sarah in this regard. And maybe he would have. Because she was supposed to give him Helena, but then she backed out of the deal. And that's right, because that's where we see Rachel the first time when Leaky calls and says she didn't show up. And so we see Rachel approaching Sarah, and she's probably the one who's better suited to it, 
quite frankly, rather than Leaky. Mm-hmm. Leaky's in over his head with Sarah, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Rachel, uh, Rachel's a, a decent match for Sarah, I feel like. And she scares the crap out of me. <laughs> well, that would be why. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, because we've kind of talked before about Sarah sort of masterminding some events before, you know, using Helena to her advantage against Olivier, for example. And it seems like that's kind of what we're seeing with Rachel a little bit, is that Rachel's maybe kind of in charge of some of the the things that Dyad's doing. So, so yeah, I, I agree that I hadn't thought about it before necessarily in those terms. But yeah, I think you're right that Rachel is a better match for Sarah in that sense. And of course, the big reveal that we get in the conversation with Rachel is that the Institute knows about Kira. And I'm guessing it was a simple kind of record search that got them to that point, because probably Kira has a birth certificate and Sarah's listed as her mother. Right. I mean, that is a logical bit of fallout from them finding out Sarah's name. Yeah, because you really feel pretty strongly that that the clone experiment did not know about Sarah. And I think that everything indicates that to be true. Right. So when they got her name from Delphine, when Leaky got her name from Delphine, I would imagine their immediate reaction would be a they would go into research mode and try to figure out everything about her. Because when when Leaky confronts Paul in in episode nine in Unconscious Selection, he mentions how Helena couldn't have fooled him the way uh, because she's feral, but Sarah Manning could, which implies that they probably know about her her criminal background. I suppose. So that's just my thought, is that probably they snapped into research mode and tried to find out everything they could about her. And that's how they found out about Kira, even though Delphine didn't mention her. They're scientists. They do like research. Indeed. Also, just a thought. Since we know that Daniel Rosen showed up at the police station and we know the police knew about Kira, it's it's possible that they found out then if they didn't already know. That's a good point. Because he could have been listening in even to some of the conversation before coming through the door. Right. And we also see back at, at wherever Rachel's office is, we see Paul. That's the only place we see Paul in this episode. And I find it interesting that Sarah just feels so immediately by, betrayed by him by seeing him at the building, even though he'd been collaborating with Leaky on her behalf prior to that. And there's another parallel between Sarah and Gazima, because... They both knew that they were being monitored, but the betrayal still stings. But I find it interesting that she immediately thought he had betrayed her, and he wasn't just continuing to sort of work with the with the organization on her behalf. I mean, apparently she was right, but I don't know that that's where my first thought would have gone. Yeah, I don't know. I guess maybe it's because, you know, before he was acting as sort of an intermediate between Sarah and Dyad. Mm -hmm. So she kind of knew what he was doing, as opposed to here where she walks in and there he is sort of acting as elevator operator. Right. But I kind of feel a little bit bad for Paul in that instance, because they had been kind of, you know, lovey-dovey. And then all of a sudden, ah, you have completely betrayed me. You are dead to me. <laughs> Again, paralleling Kasima and Delphine in the yeah. episode before. But Paul finally reveals to Sarah what dirt the organization has on him. 
when she when she returns later in the episode and and they're in the elevator together and he he mentions that it's a, a incident involving friendly fire and and some marines in Afghanistan and he asks her this question which i think is kind of interesting you know they ha- he says they have this on me what do they have on you since you were born outside of their control and he really challenges her to consider her choices in regards to colluding with the institute Although I don't know why he doesn't, I don't know, I guess I'm perplexed by his asking Sarah that, because it seems pretty clear to me, and maybe this is just because I'm actually watching everything that's going on from outside the show, but why does Paul not seem to be thinking about Kira? As as a motivating factor for Sarah, you mean? Yeah. I guess I'm confused by his asking that, just because... If they're holding things against him, why does he not seem to think that they'll use Kira as leverage in some way? Well, I don't know that he's necessarily not considering that, but I I think maybe he's challenging her to examine what exactly is motivating her to be there. But, I mean, that's a good point. Maybe he's being short-sighted and not recognizing that they, they might have information on her daughter to hold over her. But when he asks her that, when he's he seems to be inviting her not to collude with, with the Institute, it seems almost like a flip-flop from his attitude in the earlier scene where he, he tells Sarah, you know, you need to listen to them. You need to hear them out. But maybe that's because he could be overheard in that moment. He wasn't too far from Rachel then. True. Possible. We know they're big on surveillance. Yeah. And But I was wondering if... I, I guess Paul is still with the organization? I don't know, because they both exited the elevator before they got to the top floor. However, when we see Sarah later, she's by herself, so it doesn't look like Paul went with her. Oh, and they've still got the stuff over Paul, so right, it makes sense that he's not... I, it seems like Paul's kind of in limbo, allegiance-wise, to me. Yeah. So, so yeah, I'm kind of curious where they'll go with his storyline in season two. Because it's just super ambiguous in this last episode where exactly he is at headspace-wise, to me anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then Sarah's storyline leads up to this huge, upsetting confrontation with Helena. And, you know, that's that's sort of precipitated by Sarah coming back to Paul's apartment and finding all the blood from where... Amelia has has bled all over the floor from Helena stabbing her. And that's such a super creepy scene. How long did it take you to realize that that Sarah wasn't Sarah when you first watched the episode? Do you remember? I really don't is the weird thing because it seems like it seems like the first time I watched it, I was thinking Something feels wrong, but I think I was midway through the scene before I realized it wasn't Sarah. And every time I rewatch it, I wonder why I didn't realize it sooner. Mm-hmm. Because it's so, I mean, watching it, knowing what happens, it's so obvious that it's Helena. Mm-hmm. It's so obvious, like painfully obvious. But the way I remember watching it, at least, I remember it as not really realizing it. Yeah. Because they they do not cheat. They have her in full Helena 
makeup the entire scene. If you look when she's closing the door behind Amelia, when she first gets there, you can see the kind of red rimmed eyes. So it's not like they, they tried to trick the audience very overtly by not having her in like full Helena makeup. And she's moving like Helena. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I agree. I feel like I, it took me a while to realize it wasn't Sarah the first time I watched it. They set it up really well because they had the scene of Sarah telling Mrs. S that she was going to go meet with Amelia. Mm-hmm. So they've already planted it in your mind that that's going to happen. But yeah, that that's what I mean. Like, you know, rewatching it, it's so obvious that it's Helena. You know, she sounds like Helena. She's moving like Helena. Obviously, her face looks like Helena's face. And yeah, it's just, it's it's quite a uh, weird mind game. Mm-hmm. Really, this entire show is kind of a weird mind game, mm-hmm. which is why I like it. <laughs> but I thought it was interesting that Helena really seemed to recognize her weaknesses in this encounter because Helena is not very good at sustaining accents. And so the only thing she says to Amelia in Sarah's accent or not in her own accent really is drink. And it's perfect enough that you don't really recognize the fact that, oh, she didn't say something more complicated, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's short enough that she can manage to say it and sound like Sarah, or at least not sound like herself. Yeah, she doesn't quite sound like Sarah, though. It's it's one of those weird she things. Doesn't. Again, the first time you don't necessarily pick up on it, but mm-hmm. once you know, it's it's so obvious. <laughs> yeah. She she doesn't quite have Sarah's accent, but she doesn't have her Russian accent either. But it's short enough that if you're not paying super close attention, it doesn't doesn't ring like alert you as weird. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah, rewatching it every time you're just kind of like, Amelia, watch out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or maybe that's just me. No, I'm the same way. I feel so bad for Amelia. She seems like a nice woman and she gets stabbed. Yes. And it's so upsetting, both because you're seeing an, an innocent woman being, being harmed. And also because of the reason Helena says she's, she's killing her. She's just so upset at Amelia because she says she, ga- you gave me to them. You, you let them make me this way. And even though that's not true, you know, that's, that is Helena's truth. And it's just really heartbreaking. Yeah. And, Again, also, every time, I'm just kind of like, because Helena asks, you know, how did the scientists put the babies in your belly? And then she stabs her immediately after. And I'm just kind of, you know, Helena, that's not, that's not a good way to get answers. And I shouldn't make jokes right now, but it does actually go through my mind every time. Yeah. And this, it's really, this confrontation is a continuation of what we saw between her and Tomas. Because what really, what she says to him before she jumps on top of him and tries to gouge his eyes out is you made me this way. So this Helena's come to this realization that, or at least she's actively admitting that she's not a good person. She's a, a troubled, violent individual. Well, and it's all kind of an echo of her conversation with Kira where Kira asked her what happened to you. So at least I kind of feel like all of this is sort of resulting, especially from that interaction. Right. And and when Kira asks her that, that's really an echo of Sarah asking her that in episode four. And so 
definitely, I think her interaction with both Sarah and Kira, but especially Kira, have really gotten her to start thinking about her life and how she ended up where she is. Right. Because, of course, Sarah asks her that while holding a gun to her head, basically. Mm -hmm. And Kira asks her that and then gives her a hug. Mm -hmm. So they're definitely very different circumstances. But when Sarah asks it, there is a lot of pathos in her voice. I think she's finally coming to, in that moment, understand that terrible things have been done to Elena. Mm -hmm. But yeah, she's it is definitely a much more tender moment when Kira says it. Right. So when we finally see Sarah and Helena have a conversation in this episode, Sarah's just so distraught over over Amelia. And it, it gets me when she says, you, you killed someone I've been dreaming of my whole life. Mm-hmm. Those poor kids. I know. And their abandonment issues. And, you know, the just the conversation between conversation slash beating... <laughs> Really, between Helena and Sarah is just so disturbing and strange. Mm-hmm. I, I don't quite understand why Helena attacks her quite so violently. Do you? No. Aside from the fact that, as Tatiana Maslany has said in interviews and, and such, that Helena is motivated by love, but goes about it in completely the wrong way. Mm-hmm. And that statement makes a lot of sense, especially when you're watching this episode, I think. Right. That, yeah, she just keeps acting out in these, like, extremely violent ways. But it's toward, it's toward people that she doesn't necessarily wish bad things upon or something. She has no ill intent towards these people, necessarily. It's just... Yeah, especially toward Sarah. She is very, very violent toward her. And yet in the previous episode, she gave her a hug and said, I love you. So she's... I love you so much. I'm going to headbutt you now. Yeah, I'm going to headbutt you and wrap a chain around your neck and try to strangle you. But then make a point that you couldn't kill me. So that means I can't kill you because we are sisters. (laughs) And we make a family, yes? No. (laughs) (laughs) Sarah's already got a family. Yes, I like that that's her response. I've, you know, I've got a family and I wonder who else she's including in that statement. If, if it's just, you know, Kira and Felix and Mrs. S or if she's also thinking of the clones like Kasima and, and Allison as well as part of her family. I wonder about that too. I'd say it's debatable at this point, but I do think that certainly she considers them more family than Helena. Yeah, for sure given that Helena has tried to kill them. So, I mean, because thinking about it, they've been building up to this showdown since the first episode. The first episode ends with Helena, though we don't know it's Helena at the time, putting a bullet in Katya's head. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I mean, it's it makes sense that 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 confrontation ended the way it did. Also, I think that Helena's weird response of, you know, trying to strangle Sarah with a chain because she loves her actually sort of weirdly makes sense in the context of her being raised by Tomas. Right. Who put her in a cage. Right. Because he allegedly loves her. So, you know, it kind of makes a weird, cruel 
painful kind of sense. And and finally, Sarah does what she's been threatening to do since episode four of the of the first season, and she shoots Helena. And I'm a skeptic sci-fi viewer, so in my head, nobody's really dead until you see them get lowered into the ground, and that can even have a caveat if you're watching a vampire show. So, <laughs> or a zombie show, or a zombie show. Thank you. <laughs> but I, I, it seems like what we've heard from writers, producers, Helene is probably dead, or they could be pulling a leaky on us and uh, telling us. Telling us lies. Yes. Because as we saw last episode, Kira has super healing powers, which we can only assume came from Sarah. And perhaps they genetically modified Sarah. And since Helena's her clone, we can assume that perhaps Helena might have super healing powers as well. So she came back from a, a rebar through the liver. What's a little bullet, really? Oh, sci-fi shows. <laughs> We're so skeptical, Stephanie. I know. I know. It's like, yeah, we mentioned in the Helena episode, just not sure if it'd be a good thing or a bad thing for Helena to be dead, because she certainly adds a sense of unpredictability to the show, which is good for a TV show. And she's a very sympathetic character, and yet she's still an antagonist, which is an often difficult balance to strike. Mm -hmm. So she's a great character. So part of me hates to think that her story is over. But she was also terribly abused and violent and acting out. And maybe it's best that she has some peace in death. Mm -hmm. So I'm so sad right now. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. I'm sorry. I blame you, show. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll see. Maybe maybe Helena will be back, but but maybe not. So the conversation with Helena really seems to like you know, like I mentioned. All of this clone stuff is really coming down like a like a weight on Sarah in this episode. And she, I think, just sort of feels like she can't take it anymore when it comes to the having to kill Helena and Amelia's dead. And it spurs her to call Rachel. And what she says to her is, can you promise me my daughter will never have to go through something like this? That's not word for word, but that's essentially what she says. Live like this. There we go. And... That's what really seems to get her to consider Rachel's offer is the idea of protecting Kira from all of this nonsense. But obviously calls it off last minute, which leaves us with this this big cliffhanger at the end of the episode when she comes home and finds it all ransacked of of who took Kira. Mm -hmm. So, of course, the two big options are Rachel or Mrs. S., at least those are the two big options in my mind. I agree. And and like I mentioned, when Kira mentions at the top of the episode, something bad is going to happen, it makes me wonder if she wasn't talking about Rachel trying to kidnap her. And because Mrs. S had warning, she managed to sneak Kira away before they got there. Warning and a shotgun. Yes, warning and a shotgun. And... Because when when Sarah leaves the house to go meet Amelia, again, Mrs. S is looking super guilty. <laughs> so uh, part of me wonders if... if I, I feel fairly confident that probably Mrs. S took Kara. That's my guess. My money's on Mrs. S. 
I certainly hope that that's what happened. Yes. Because otherwise, tremendous anxiety on my part. (laughs) I worry about fictional characters. I do, too. But speaking of Mrs. S, we see her in this episode rifling through Amelia's things and finding this picture. And we see later in the episode when Sarah gets it from Amelia, it says on the back, professors so-and-so-and-so-and-so, their names have been marked out. Redacted. Yeah. Project LEDA, L-E-D-A, all caps, July 22nd, 1977. So this would have been a good six years or so before Amelia was was brought into the project because the clones were all born in 1984. Mm-hmm. But somehow she's gotten a hold of this picture. And I, I, th- I think we're meant to assume that the woman in the photo is Mrs. S. Is that your impression, too? Yes. I mean, both from the way Mrs. S responded to the photo when she found it. Also, how did she know exactly where to find it? I always wonder. And then I, I think from what Amelia says, it sounds like it's Mrs. S. Right. Because she says, your foster mother isn't who she says she is or something like that. Right. But I think it's interesting. We see Mrs. S rifling through her things, finding the picture, but she puts the picture back. Right. Exactly. She doesn't try to take it and hide it from Sarah. She puts it back in Amelia's things. and th- But then we see her kind of warn Sarah about Amelia before she goes to meet her. And I'm not entirely sure what to make of that. Yeah. See, this is part of the thing, because I, I know a lot of people are perhaps a bit concerned that maybe Mrs. S never actually left Dyad. Mm-hmm. Or whatever. But to me, all of these super guilty looks indicate that she has and that she genuinely is trying to look out for Sarah. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of what she's trying to convey to Sarah. It's like, you know, I I know that Amelia is going to tell you these things about me, but I I want you to trust me still Mm -hmm. is sort of what I'm hearing below the surface. But that might just be me. Yeah, that's that's a good that's a good point because she says I forget exactly what she's talking about when she's what what she's literally supposed to be talking about in the moment, but in that exchange with Sarah where she's warning her about Amelia, she says it was a long time ago. And the way that Maria Doyle Kennedy delivers that line, I agree, there's sort of this double meaning of when I was involved with the project, I was a different person. I have a different res- perspective now. I feel kind of badly about it. So I-, I agree. I feel like she did leave the project and she's trying to maybe make amends in a way. Mm-hmm. It might just be wishful thinking on my part, but that's what I keep thinking and hearing in those exchanges. Yeah, I agree. So this episode has a three clone scene. It's been a while since we've had a scene with all, with three clones in it. And it's probably the most ambitious scene, technically speaking, since the Allison Sarah scene in Variations Under Domestication, where she sit, where Sarah sits on the couch next to Allison and like leans over and tries to grab her wine glass. And Pats it's her on the leg. Exactly. And again, it's just this is such a well done couple of scenes, really, technically speaking, when Kasima first comes back to Felix's loft, and then we see them a beat later talking about the the contracts and things that they've been given by Leaky. But we see clones, you know, crossing each other's paths. Allison pours Cosima wine. 
they those two sit very close to each other on the couch. It's just a really great filmmaking right there. And Sarah and Kasima hug. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that scene is insane. I know, I know. There's a small moment right before they hug where there, if you look closely enough, you can kind of tell that it's a, it's a composite shot because I know, but Kasima's arm looks a little CGI ish, but it's such a minor little thing, especially for a television show. It's just, it's really well done. The, the entire couple of exchanges that they have. Mm hmm. Especially the wine pouring. How do they do that? <laughs> I'm so impressed. I think most of us are. Actually, the wine pouring, I, I can kind of imagine how they might do that, but, but it's still impressive. Yes, it is. I don't remember if I told you this or not. I was watching it with some of my cousins, and one of my other cousins came in and watched, I don't know, a few minutes of an episode. I forget which episode it was. And then she sort of was asking about the show, and I was like, oh, yeah, the something about the lead actress, and, and I forget exactly what it was I was saying, talking about effects shots or something. And, and she's like, wait, all those, it's just one actress? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, what, what did you think they did? How many did you think there were? I don't know, three? <laughs> it was fairly amusing. That's funny. Yeah, and it's it's really, you can tell the show really made a commitment to having the clones interact and really selling the idea that they are clones and not just kind of taking an easier way, uh, an easier route and not having the clones interact. But they really committed and chose to have these scenes where they're like, no, these are three separate people. They're going to interact with each other. Yep. And I, I just the results that they they managed to to achieve are, are really impressive. Big, 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 big kudos to the show for these scenes where we get to see the clones interact. And for daring to be that ambitious. Mm-hmm. And pulling it off. Yeah, for sure. And I love, I really love the sweet makeup m- scene between Sarah and Kasima that starts off sort of the three clones sequence because Kasima comes in and she says to her all tail between her legs, you know, I totally should have listened to you about Delphine. And Sarah's just so kind about it. She just says, it's okay. And gives her a hug. It's very sisterly. Mm-hmm. I forget, is this after she finds Paul at Dyad? Yes. Okay, because then I'm going to bring back the point I made earlier that it's sort of a paralleled storyline here that, which I mean, we'd seen before that both Sarah and Kasima are sort of having these weird romances with their monitors and they know they're their monitors and then they're feeling betrayed by their monitors. So I think, again, it's it's a certain amount of common ground here. Mm-hmm. I agree. I, I think her encounter with Paul at Rachel's office really gave her an extra sort of sense of empathy for Kasima that we see here when, when they make up. And I just really like seeing the change in the dynamic between the three clones. If you think back to episode three versus now, I really like that when Allison says to them, if it protects my family, I'm inclined to sign their contract. And even though you can tell in the look they exchange with each other, they aren't entirely comfortable with it. Both Kasima and Sarah just sort of support Allison in making that decision. Mm-hmm. Although part of me wonders if it's, at least on Kasima's part, 
because she's also considering taking them up on their offer. It's possible. It's possible. But again, it's it seems it's like a very sisterly moment, more sisterly than kind of before they were really thrown together due to circumstance. But at this point in the season, they really seem to have a, a real rapport with each other and a more in a deeper relationship, I guess. Right. Well, they've been through some stuff. Yeah. Over the course of the season. And that'll do that. <laughs> so as far as Allison's storyline is concerned, <laughs> I I love that we we get to see her working out to that sort of hip hop exercise video. Yes, hip hop abs, I believe it is. There we go. I feel like that's one of the few times, if not the only time we see Allison not being completely uptight when she isn't drunk or high. <laughs> yeah. And for some reason, I'm always vaguely surprised that it's hip-hop abs mm -hmm. and not, I don't know, sweating to the oldies or something. Yeah, I remember when this episode originally aired, reading somebody on Tumblr mentioning the fact that it, it was surprising to them that Allison was doing hip-hop abs and that she danced so well in that sort of style of dance. Mm-hmm. Or like, why not, I don't know, Zumba or something, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, she needed... It's very much not sort of like white suburban lady of her to to be doing hip-hop abs. It's, it, I, I would imagine she'd be more like Zumba or what's that other one that's really intensive? I can't think of the name. But yeah, something like that. But we might be thinking about it too much. Probably. <laughs> Probably. I don't, I don't really know any 30-ish suburban housewives so yeah i don't think i do so i don't know i don't know what they do <laughs> but we see leaky approach allison first with what he calls a treaty for her and i think it's i like that when he offers allison answers to her questions she responds that she doesn't she doesn't want answers anymore she just wants to get her life back on track essentially i was actually thinking during this rewatch about Felix's comment from earlier in the season. Actually, I guess it was just a couple episodes ago where he was talking about something about normals losing their fake happiness. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then they come downtown. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To find themselves. And yeah. Yes. But, but specifically that he mentions their fake happiness. And right. I, I kept thinking about that watching it this time that, that, yeah, that's sort of what Allison is deliberately going for here. She's choosing her fake happiness. Doesn't it seem like that to you? Well, yes, but I think she doesn't think of it as fake happiness. I think she thinks she can get real happiness back. Hmm. Okay. But maybe I'm wrong. Because I, obviously her relationship with Donnie wasn't fantastic before. But he did make sort of a sweet gesture toward her in episode nine when he was... He told everybody to leave the house and as he was leaving, he kind of squeezes her shoulder. Mm -hmm. So, and they'd been through marriage kind of couples counseling prior to that. So maybe she felt like she could salvage a better relationship with Donnie. Mm -hmm. well, I'm not saying that part is necessarily the, the fake happiness. I'm oh, okay. thinking that perhaps in Allison's mind, because again, Leaky offers her answers and everything, but she basically wants to, as much as she can, pretend that that part of her life just doesn't exist. That's fair. I can see that. It's sort of the the illusion of not being in the clone situation. Yeah, I can see that. So Dawson, who both Chris and I know from Twitter, 
he apparently was was rewatching the finale the other day and he wrote on Twitter, I'm reminded of how terrifying Allison is when watching this episode. And I have a feeling he's referring to the incident with Ainsley. <laughs> yes. And I think he actually said something about Allison being the most terrifying clone. Yes, exactly. The most terrifying clone, even more than Helena, I guess. And the confrontation with Ainsley is, Allison is kind of terrifying in that moment. Yes. Although I, I think it's important to note that she does look really uncertain the entire time. Mm-hmm. I, I think for for a second there, she doesn't look uncertain. And that moment is extremely terrifying. But I think for the most part, she just looks kind of freaked out on several levels. I agree. She definitely is unsure most of the time and sort of battling with... I, I think there's a combination of being like paralyzed and not knowing what to do, which could happen to anybody mm-hmm. in, in such a situation. And also, but also there's a soon a switch to Allison's clearly debating does she help this person who she feels has made her life horrible, who's been, you know, watching her without her consent, or does she let it go? And maybe that means the whole clone thing never happened either. Right. But I got to argue with, with Ainsley's wisdom for trying to shove something made of felt down the garbage disposal. I know. I was thinking that too. Like, why? That just seems like a really stupid move on several levels, Ainsley. I mean, she, granted, she's selling her house, so maybe she thinks, eh, what do I care if, if the subsequent owners have to replace the garbage disposal? But that just does not seem like a smart decision for many reasons. Right. Not the least of which being your skirt might, might get caught and you get choked to death. <laughs> I know. I, did her did her parents not properly warn her about garbage disposal safety? Apparently not. But certainly after Ainsley is dead... I think Allison is really freaked out. And even though she thinks to wipe her fingerprints off of the doorknob as she leaves, this is clearly not somebody who's terribly comfortable with what just happened. Right. I'm actually thoroughly amused, which is probably awful of me, by Allison's walk out of Ainsley's house. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, Allison normally walks in a fairly uptight kind of way. Mm Mm-hmm. But a person could not be more uptight <laughs> than Allison is when she's walking out of that house. Yes, it, it's true. She is tension personified, and it is hilarious to me. Yes, and she retreats to her house, and we see her trying to clip coupons and pretend everything's okay. I love that they went back to the coupon clipping. Because you love coupon clipping. I, I do, because I clip <laughs> coupons. But then when Donnie comes home, we can see that Allison's just barely holding it together. Mm-hmm. Poor Allison. But but actually, maybe thankfully for her, or conveniently for her, Donnie's presence allows her to sort of channel that, those emotions that being, her being upset into being about the intervention in their marriage and kind of gives her an out on those emotions in a way. Mm-hmm. Poor Allison's been through a lot. She really has. I do really feel sorry for her when she's so clearly upset sitting at her kitchen counter when when Donnie comes home. Like, even though she did a terrible thing, I still feel pretty bad for her. Because, again, it's it's a terrible thing, but it's not something 
that seems entirely unreasonable. Well, it wasn't premeditated. It's it's not like she went there intending to kill Ainsley. Right. She made a terribly, terribly horrible decision. Right. And it was just a decision that had really high stakes. Yes. Yeah. I guess what I'm getting at is I am not unsympathetic to her situation. No, I agree. I I, I agree. I I understood what you were getting at. Okay. I just want to make it clear here. (laughs) (laughs) I am not supporting her actions. (laughs) But we do feel badly for her. Yes. Yeah. But but Donnie coming back and sort of promising that they could maybe have their life back together again uh, seems to be the final thing that really encourages Allison to sign the contract and send it into to right we see that Rachel gets it. And then they finally reveal for certain that Donnie is Allison's monitor. How did you feel about the covertness of that meeting, Chris? <laughs> <laughs> really? You're not even gonna Go around the corner the of the block. I know. Really? <laughs> she can see you from your window. <laughs> Leaky is really not good at the, the covert meetings. The only meeting he went to that was actually covert, it seemed like Paul had to arrange. Otherwise, he's not very good at it. <laughs> terrible. Just terrible. terrible. It's it's just pathetic. Calls himself a, a legal experiment guy. <laughs> <sighs> a sleazy watcher spy. Mm-hmm. And then we have Kasima's storyline, which begins with something very upsetting. Though I, I do quite like the person on Tumblr I saw who referred to, who, who's clearly tr- trying to live in denial about Kasima's health situation, who referred to it as the cranberry juice incident. The ball pit of denial. Yes, and I really like that. So I, I'm going to probably can refer to it as the cranberry juice incident until season two starts so not that much longer but you're living in denial as long as you possibly can exactly understandable very understandable and subsequent to the cranberry juice incident you know this is when leaky chooses to approach her so bad timing dude really bad timing (laughs) or really excellent timing (laughs) depending on your perspective i guess but i i think it does i'm trying to remember what he says to her Basically, he says something. I like Kasima's response to Leaky, where he's like, where she's just like, I'm pissed. Uh, but I forget what he says to her to make her say that. But I feel like uh, the the respiratory issues did not help him in that situation. But maybe I'm wrong. I'm just saying, you know, there's probably an added sense of urgency for Kasima. You know? Well, she definitely would be more interested in getting her genome, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I could see where where the the issue might spur her to take the employment contract. But I, I, I don't know. I feel like she would also equally be reasonable in just being angry at her creators in that moment, since she knows that yeah. that's a common illness amongst the clones. But it is something she'd already been working on puzzling out. So, and as we know from our friend our friend Sally, that clones often die of respiratory illness. And as a scientist, Cosima would be more likely to know that and thus really be more likely to blame the fact that she has respiratory illness on the fact that she is a clone. Mm-hmm. So. And then of course, Delphine comes back or rather comes to Toronto and she texts Cosima 
once she gets there, which for some reason amuses me. But I guess Cosima agreed to see her, because how else would she have gotten to to Felix's apartment? Mm-hmm. But yeah, that was bold. Bold move, Delphine. It seems to have worked out, though. Yeah, yeah. And I, I love when she shows up at the door and is confronted by Felix, who is in protective brother mode. But I, I love his initial response to, to her as, oh, now I get it. <laughs> After giving her the wants over, yeah. Yes. <laughs> and then, of course, his, his comments to Kasima to when, you know, Delphine's here, she's got baggage. <laughs> so Kasima and Delphine spend the episode on what's probably their best date ever, where <laughs> they're looking <laughs> at, at Kasima's genome and trying to figure out the synthetic code. So they're really doing the, I don't know, the heavy lifting in regards to getting more information about the clone experiments in this episode. And when Delphine, I feel like for Cosima, this episode is really the first time we see the fact that she's a clone start to kind of wear on her. Mm -hmm. She of the three clones kind of has ex accepted it the best, but especially when Delphine tells her her ID number it really seems to hit home with the fact that she's kind of a lab experiment. Right. Of course, you, you say that, but then you also find the exchange of, I know your tag number. You do? You find that to be the most romantic thing ever, correct? No, no, I think Cosima thinks that's the most romantic thing ever. <laughs> that oh. Delphine, Delphine knows her tag number. Cosima <laughs> just has this expression on her face like, this is the most romantic thing that anybody's ever said to you. <laughs> you know, it's it. I just really like her, her face after Delphine says that swoon. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's a very <laughs> swoony look before the, the fact that she has a, a code associated with her comes crashing down. But in the, at the same time, don't we all, if you have a social security number, you're quantified in society in regards to that. So, mm hmm. But anyway, this isn't about me. This is about Cosima. And <laughs> and then I, I I like the subsequent scenes where we see them try to decode the synthetic sequence. They both both Evelyn Brochu and Tatiana Maslany do a really good job keeping up their enthusiasm about this. And it just seems like they're having a great time. Best date ever. A <laughs> uh, bunch of adorable nerds. Mm-hmm. Yes, this is probably even more nerd flirting, even nerdier nerd flirting than what we've seen between them previously. Yes. What with their uh, companionable joint hunching over laptops. <laughs> Talking about binary. And then the scene ends in a, you know, clearly heartbreaking way where Cosima confesses to Delphine that she's sick and they hug and... I might get a little teary every time that happens. I will not confirm or deny. Okay. <laughs> I won't I won't press the issue. Okay. Yes, oddly enough, my thought watching it this time, it's like they both look like they're probably really good huggers. <laughs> I can get there. I can get there. Yes, I'm always concerned about whether or not people are good huggers because I'm weird. So Art and Angie, even though they've effectively been 
shut down, apparently, by, by Daniel Rosen showing up and taking Zara away. They keep working the case, and they manage to find Vic. Because he's a known associate of Sarah Manning. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, it looks like Vic maybe is finally starting to get his life together. I'm, I'm hopeful for Vic. But I don't know, what was your kind of emotion when Vic popped up again? Do you remember when you first saw it? I do not remember. Because I feel like it was a combination of, for me at least, it was a combination of, uh uh-oh, and, oh goody, Vic is back, he's usually hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) And he did not disappoint me in the hilarious regard, because I I love when he finishes his little talk about his bottoming out, and he says, my name's Victor, and I'm an addict, maybe. Not quite getting into the spirit of the program, 100% there, Vic. (laughs) And then I love that he had an arrest warrant for selling stolen meat. <laughs> yeah. Because of course he does. Because of course he does. I mean, what, what else would he have a, a, an open warrant for? But I guess he also does fulfill the uh-oh factor because he does lead Art and Angie to Allison. And and I love how they pretty much immediately realize, oh, that's not Sarah Manning. That's somebody completely different. Right. Of course, is that an uh-oh moment or is that an oh-good moment? Because I'm never quite sure. That's true. That's true. And I, I like how they leave the police investigation so open-ended at the end of the first season. Mm-hmm. With, okay, yeah, they hit a, a roadblock, but they're just sort of, they're rec- they still have a lot of information in recognizing how many clones are out there, how many women are out there who look exactly the same. And I wonder if, or how... It seems like they would need to at this point. The Diet Institute would intervene in this situation. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious how it's going to play out, too. Just because it seems like both Art and Angie are sort of the dogged determination types, doesn't it? It does. It for sure does. So it'll be interesting to see how that storyline continues. Because I, I feel like it will I mean, it's there's so much stuff left hanging at the end of this episode with regard to their storyline. Mm-hmm. It feels like something else has to happen there. Yeah, I agree. Because now they know something is up. They know mm-hmm. something big is up. So, right. yeah. The thing about this episode, there's not enough Felix because there's hardly ever enough Felix. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't have a whole lot to do in this episode. He's mainly says funny things in the background but he he gets some great lines as always and i do really like the scene between him and and angie at the police station yes oh angie i love that he points out the fact that her name is angie DeAngelis, which is kind of an absurd name but I, I i don't know i feel like felix is kind of bested at least in the moment by somebody which is not something we get to see often Mm -hmm. and i mean she's horrible to him i i hate the whole public defender it is we'll make sure to get you a shitty one but it's that's terrible but at the same time it's it's a pretty great exchange between the two of them yeah oh angie (laughs) and i thought it was significant in this episode that felix comes up with rachel's pro clone nickname and it doesn't have the word dick in it (laughs) (laughs) no it does not because prior to this, his nicknames, you know, Big Dick Paul and Vic the Dick, kind of were on a theme, and he's branching out with Proclone. Yes. Of course, 
you know, Rachel's a lady. <laughs> so maybe <laughs> I, that has something to do with it. Maybe, but I don't know that that would necessarily hold hold Felix back. Because Rachel's not nice. She's kind of a jerk. So, you know. Right. <laughs> I'm just saying. So I had a lot of sort of stray thoughts and, and observations when I was watching this episode. And uh, first of all, thank you for recycling, Allison. It made me happy that she was putting her wine bottles into a recycling bin. You know, I, I noticed that you were commenting on that, but to me, it's just very suburban. To recycle? Yeah, I mean, like the rows of houses with their recycling bins out in front of it. But that doesn't mean that everybody will recycle. Trust me. <laughs> I'm kind of a recycling nut. And I'm always annoyed when I go to a house that has regular recycling pickup and it's, you know, single stream. You just got to put your recycling in a bin and then people don't do it. It drives me crazy. Okay. I'm just saying my experiences in the suburbs, just rows of houses with their recycling bins in front of them. Are they often filled with wine bottles? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't go around looking at other people's recycling bins. So again, in this episode, we see Kira sticking up for Helena when Sarah tells her, you know, you don't have to be afraid of Helena anymore. Kira says she isn't afraid of Helena because she isn't a real monster. Right. Which makes sense based on their previous interaction. Yeah. And again, it's a nod to Kira's perceptiveness, particularly we've seen about Helena, but just in general, she's clearly a very perceptive child. Right. And there's also a nice, a nice sort of reference to maybe because Kira's, how old is she? I think she's six. Seven. Seven? Okay. She's seven. She could mean, you know, Helena's not a monster like the boogeyman who hides in my closet or something like that. Or, you know, monster she's seen in a, in a movie or something like that. I don't think that's what she means. But I like that there's a a way that she says that, that, that to Sarah, it could just sound like she's saying, oh, she's not a monster like these other things that I think are monsters. Hmm. See, I hadn't even thought of it that way. Just because it's Kira. Yeah. Who is so perceptive that you just kind of think that Kira probably wouldn't even think of any of that stuff. Yeah. In any sort of reality type of context. Though she makes that comment in the scene where Sarah's having, she's packing a bag for Kira and she tells her not to tell Mrs. S about it. And I, why do you think she's planning to maybe need to run away at some point? Is it because of the police or, or I, I was kind of not entirely certain in that scene. Yeah, I'm not sure either. Well, Kira does make the comment that when the police come, mommy runs away. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I think that's valid, but I do suspect that it has more to do with the Neolutionists and maybe even the Prolethians, though I don't know. Because really everything, everybody's closing in yeah. on all sides, so... Yeah, like, I understand why she'd be packing a bag in that instance, but the fact that she tells Kira not to tell Mrs. S, especially since they've gotten close, do you think she's trying to maybe protect Mrs. S so that she can't be questioned? Or why do you think she tells Kira not to tell Mrs. S? Not sure. I think that's a valid interpretation, though. So Amelia has a a, a line in this episode that's very much at the goes to the the theme of the of the series where she asks of Helena and Sarah how can two fates be so different you two are like night and day which is clearly a big thing the show explores is how we end up who we are especially when you start with the same 
genetic material. Mm-hmm. Poor Amelia. <laughs> she says something so relevant, and then she dies. And then she dies. And then... Oh, another thing I noticed is that when Sarah is in the warehouse looking for Helena, she really holds her gun and her flashlight like a cop would. Oh. Yeah, because she, she has her little, her small flashlight in one hand, and then when she's holding her gun, she she puts her, her hand with the flashlight underneath the gun, because that's how you need to hold a gun to fire it so that you have enough support to handle the, you know, the, the kickback. Right. And I was just looking, I was like, oh, she really looks like a cop there, even though she was just pretending to be one. She... She either picked it up or, yeah, or she's just kind of practical like that. Yep. I buy either explanation. Mm -hmm. And then when they close in on the shot of the basement window that Helena has broken out of at the beginning of the episode, I noticed that there is blood on the broken glass of the window. Mm -hmm. But when we see Helena later, she seems fine. Like she doesn't seem to have any major wounds or anything like that. So I, I'm wondering if that's also more evidence of her, her possible super healing abilities. Hmm. That's a solid point. <laughs> I also loved Allison's not real swears in these epi- in this episode where in, in Felix's apartment, she says, Jesus Murphy instead of Jesus Christ, which doing a, a Google search, it, it seems like that's maybe a Canadian thing. I'm seeing several hmm. people say in Canada... They there's kind of a, a habit of saying Jesus Murphy instead of Jesus Christ. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I did not know that. As it says on Urban Dictionary, a phrase uttered by Canadians who stub their toes by replacing Christ with Murphy, these Canadians manage to avoid hell. <laughs> and then later in the episode, when she's talking to Donnie, she says Judas Priest. <laughs> Which for that some always reason, cracks me up. Yeah, it makes me laugh. Even though it's kind of a sad scene, it makes me laugh when she says Judas Priest. Because it's Allison. Allison's just kind of a tragic comedy. Yes, she is. Yeah, I noticed also that Allison lives at the corner of Black Oak and White River. Ah, black and white. Yeah, see? Mm-hmm. I see what you did there, show. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how much attention you pay to the Helena music, but there's sort of a sort of a muted metallic clank. <laughs> is possibly the most awkward way I can come up with to describe it <laughs> that goes along with the Helena screech. Uh-huh. I think we really often hear it when she's on the ship with Tomas. Okay. It's there a lot. I'm not fam- as familiar with the muted metallic clank, but I'll try to try to pick up on it if I if I rewatch when I rewatch the episodes. It's sort of like a dunk kind of sound. <laughs> okay. Okay, that's helpful. But they play it a lot. It's it's part of her her musical palette. And so she, she's got the screech and the muted metallic clank. Right. So there's a lot of the muted metallic clank and no screeches until she starts to try to escape from the beam. Okay. And then we get sort of like muted screeches, like a couple times. And then when they show the shot of the window. Mm-hmm. There's like the full fledged Helena screech. Yeah. And just and, the screech. And nothing else. Right. Yeah. So that is very effective when it's just the Helena screech. Yeah. It's sort of like nails on a chalkboard and it freaks me out. So, so yeah, last episode it took a while for them to get to the Helena screech, but, but here it's, it's very prominent from the get go because 
Helene is freaking terrifying in this episode. Yes. Although I did, I kept thinking how kind of sad it was that Sarah frees Helena from the cage that Tomas had put her in and then throws her in her trunk. Yeah. Yeah. It made me kind of sad. Yeah. I mean, it's a perfectly reasonable thing to do on, on Sarah's part. Yeah. I mean, she just saw her try to gouge a man's eyes out. I think it's fair, but, but it is sad to see her be freed from one cage just to be tied up or put in a trunk. Mm-hmm. So let us know your thoughts about the season one finale of Orphan Black. We would love to hear your ideas about what all happens in this episode. You can send us those thoughts in a variety of ways. You can go and leave a comment on the show notes for this episode over at TatianaIsEveryone.com. You can send us an email to feedback at TatianaIsEveryone.com or you can send us a voice message by clicking on the send voicemail tab on the right hand side of the website. You can also follow us on Twitter at TIE Podcast. And thank you to everybody who's left a rating or review for us on iTunes. We really appreciate that. This week, Helena's muted Metallic Clank and Judas Priest were played by Tatiana Maslany. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.